0: As a deep cave explorer, you've become accustomed to the noises in the dark. You're prepared, and your mind doesn't race to the dark denizens that lurk, perhaps, in the darkness, but truly only exist in your mind. There is a whistling of the wind, and a rumbling of the earth. Perhaps the breath of a beast, and the stomach churning of a monster that lies just behind those cavern walls. You reach for a piece of rock that covers a crack in the wall. Wait. Do you hear it? Shh. It's there. Welcome, listeners, to your brand new creepy series titled Ted the Caver. I will link you to the website, and Patreon supporters will have a nifty set of images to refer to tonight. This is a big series all about a mysterious cave, and... The horrors that lie within. And it's a long one. It may start off a little slow, but it' a slow burn sort of story that I hope you'll all enjoy. So get rugged up, bring your glow sticks, and listen closely for any sounds that you may hear in the dark. The 3rd, 23rd, 01, 2001. Due to the overwhelming number of requests I have received to tell about my discoveries and bizarre experiences in a cave not far from my home, I have created this website. I will outline the events that happened to me during the past few months, beginning with my journey into a familiar cave in December 2000 and ending... Well, it hasn't actually ended yet. I will use my caving journal as a text to tell about my recent experience. I will give them to you as I experience them in chronological order. I have included photographs that were taken during my many trips into the cave. I have also created a few illustrations to help the reader get a better idea of what things looked like in the cave. All of the photos were taken by me, or one of the few people I went into the cave with. I want to point out a few things before I tell about the events. 1. Most of the pictures were taken with a Kodak disposable type camera. I took a better camera into the cave on one or two of the trips. Pictures on this site are all original photos and have not been messed with or enhanced, other than where noted. As a rule, I get my pictures put onto a disc at the time of developing, so I don't have to scan them later. This ensures the best digital quality. 2. I will not reveal the names of the other people involved in this experience. If you know me well enough, you probably know them already. Three, I will not reveal the location of the cave to anyone for any reason, so please don't ask. I refuse to be held accountable for anyone's life but my own. I will refer to the cave as Mystery Cave. That is not its real name. If you think these events sound far-fetched, I agree. I would come to the same conclusion had I not experienced them. I will try to finish the site as soon as possible. Check the date on the main page to see when I've made updates. To protect myself from people who might want to copy this site, I include the following. All text on this and following pages are my own words and copyright 2001 10. I will divide the text into two colors for the sake of clarity. The plain text is taken directly from my caving journal. The italicized text is my comment as I reflect on the experience. I will do my best to convey the thoughts and feelings I had during the entire event. I will not use the actual names of the other individuals involved. I will include the entire relevant text of my journal. Only small parts of the journal will I skip. This will only occur when the entry has nothing to do with the experience in the cave. Such as eating dinner after a trip, getting fuel or snacks, irrelevant details, etc. My journal is fairly thorough. I will merely summarize what I'm cutting out of the actual entry. In an effort to present this experience in as accurate light as possible, I will type my journal as I wrote it. Sans grammar check. Please overlook my errors. My additional comments will help to clarify the things I wrote in my journal. Caving Journal, the twelfth, the thirtieth, two thousand. B and I decided to get into one more caving trip before the new year, so we set our sights on Mystery Cave. Not a spectacular cave, but since neither of us had been caving in a while, it would be nice to go to any cave. There was a bit of excitement to this trip. There was a small passage in the lower portion of the cave that I wanted to check out to see if it was possible to get past it. It had a small opening, but lots of air blowing out of it. Even though it was way too small to climb through, I had never even checked to see What was inside the passage? We got our gear loaded up and hit the road by 3pm. We got to the cave in great time, since B likes to drive fast. We anchored from the usual tree and began to rappel into the cave. I went down first and got my gear together, while B came down. I will refer to B many times. We've been caving together for many months now. He was injured in a caving accident a few years ago and was told he would never walk again. Through hard work and perseverance, he not only walks, but can get around very well in caves. The trickier parts of a cave might slow him down a bit, but he can make it. He patiently works through an obstacle until he gets past it. As for the reference to the small opening in the cave, there is a saying amongst cavers, if it blows, it goes. Meaning, if a passage has a good flow of air, it is probably worth investigating, after we explored all the usual passages, we climbed down to check out the hole. The hole is located deep in the cave, near the lowest part of the cave. It is on the side of a cave wall about three feet from the floor. To look inside the hole I had to kneel down to duck under an overhang of rock. I used my backup mini mag light and held it inside the hole to see what I could see. I was excited by what I saw. The wall around the hole was about three to five inches thick. It led into a tight passage. The passage opened up a bit just inside the hole. It continued back about 10 to 12 feet in a small crawl space. After that, it seemed to really open up. Although, how much? We couldn't tell. This could be a virgin passage. Obviously, no one has passed through this route, but there could be a way into the passage from the other side. To even get to the crawl space, we would have to enlarge the opening. Currently, it is about the size of my fist. Once we get past the opening, we would have a tight crawl back to where it opened up. It would take some work, but we thought we could do it. We sat down for a few minutes to rest and contemplate our plan of attack. While we sat there in the darkness, we could hear the wind howling from the other side of the passage. It was a low, eerie noise. We could also hear a low rumble from time to time. No big deal though. The cave is in the vicinity of a highway that has heavy trucks drive on it. We figured the rumble was the effect of the trucks resonating through the rocks. We determined that our best plan would be to haul a cordless drill into the cave to drill into the rock. Then we could take a bullpen and a small sledgehammer and break up the rock. It seemed pretty straightforward. We would widen the hole big enough to squeeze in and see what was on the other side. The efforts to haul all of the equipment down to the hole would be a pain, but we hoped it would be worth it. I named the passage Floyd's Tomb, after Floyd Collins. It seemed to look like the tight spot where Floyd spent his last miserable days on earth. Floyd Collins was a caver back in the early 1900s. He got stuck in a tight crawl space and was unable to free himself. It is an amazing story that is detailed in a book called Trapped! The Story of Floyd Collins. I think that was the title. I don't recall the author. Calling our passage Floyd's tomb was not only a tribute to Floyd, but a commentary of the size of the passage. (laughs) In retrospect, it's funny how simple I thought it was going to be. I figured a few hours work and we would be in. Had I known how long it was going to take. I doubt I would have even begun the project. Had I known what I was going to experience in the cave, I never would have returned. We gathered up our gear and headed for the surface. Normally I couldn't care less if I ever came back into this cave. There is nothing special about it, but now I was psyched about getting back and getting through. We hadn't even left the cave, and we were planning our return trip. The rest of the journal entry talked about the climb out of the cave, our dinner, and our trip back home. January 27-28, 2001 B and I were both excited to get back into the cave and get to work. I figured, with about four hours' work, we could be in and see what was on the other side. We had arranged to borrow a Dewalt cordless drill to bring with us. We also had masonry bits to drill with, sledgehammers, two of them, to break up the rock, Bull pins to insert into the drill holes, and a few other tools that we ended up not using. Getting the tools down to the worksite proved to be a challenge. One of us would climb down the rope and stop at a ledge or good resting place, then the other person would lower the tools. We kept repeating this routine until we got to the bottom of the cave. Then we had to drag the tools to the hole. It took about an hour to finally get to work. B took the first turn at the hole. After an hour of exhausting work, we could tell that we were not going to get through in one session. We kept trading off after we worked ourselves into a sweat. One would take a break and get some food and water, while the other one went to work. The routine went like this. To begin work, we had to get down on our knees and do our best to avoid smacking our heads on the ceiling. Working in this awkward position, we would drill into the wall around the hall. That was difficult work. We really had to push on the drill, and it was still slow progress. Then we inserted the pin into the hole and hammered on it until the rock broke up. Then, we would repeat the process. To give you an idea of how slow it went, the typical size rock that would break off was about fingernail size. If we broke off a large piece, about one third the size of my palm, it was cause for celebration. From time to time, for a variety... We were just well on a cold chisel with a five-pound sledge. It was slow progress. The problem with the sledge was that we couldn't take a good swing because of the tight quarters. Even though we spent many hours and several trips working on the hole, we never did find a better technique for widening the hole. The drill, bullpen, hammer got the best results for our efforts. We came up with some crazy ideas for breaking up the rock, Everything from TNT, never seriously considered, to haul a generator to the mouth of the cave and running an extension cord down to a jackhammer. We even thought about using liquid nitrogen to freeze the rock and make it more brittle. After a couple of hours of hard work, we realized what our limiting factor was going to be. It was about then that our first battery met an abrupt death. We had a second battery, so we swapped them out. The second battery lasted a little longer, but we hammered and chiseled. A little more often and a little longer each time. Finally, after about three more hours of drudgery, the second battery died and we called it a night. Whew! We could tell that we had done some work in the cave, but it was not much. For the first time since we got in the cave, we sat back. Both of us took a breath. It was nice to check out the results of our hard work. Then we noticed the howling again. It seemed to be a little louder than the last time we were there. We just figured the wind was blowing a little stronger outside. What we could not figure out was the rumbling. It, too, seemed to be louder and more frequent. This time, we could not attribute the noise to trucks. The road that the trucks drove on was not very busy to begin with. At that time of night it should be dead. Yet the rumbling continued. It seemed to be coming from deep within the passage, B said we would ask some veteran cavers what could be causing the noise. We didn't spend a long time admiring our work. We still had to haul the gear up and out of the cave. Actually, we left some of it in the cave. It was still difficult work. What made it worse was that we were both exhausted. Our original plan was to be done with the cave and hit a couple of other caves in the area the next day. Instead, we decided to crash at a nearby motel charge up the drill batteries, and go back to Mystery Cave. My journal goes on at length about the night after we left the cave. We got a room, dinner was excellent. I didn't sleep good despite the fact I was exhausted, etc. We both slept in so we got a late start back into the cave. The second day working on the cave went about the same as the first. We worked until both batteries were dead again. We were still not even close to getting through. The howling and rumbling continued as the day before. I'll include a photo of the opening after our first trip. Before I continue with the next journal entry I thought it might be helpful to the reader to explain a little bit about caving and about the atmosphere in the cave. As I reread and think about my description of the cave, I notice that much of the language I use in my caving journal, and the descriptions or lack thereof, assume that the reader has a knowledge of caving and what it is like inside a cave. In other words, I write my journals for me. I will take this time to give a more detailed description of the cave. I will tell about what it was like while we worked on the cave and I will summarize our feelings up to this point. The cave was discovered several decades ago when construction in the area unearthed its entrance. From that time to the present, it had been visited by mostly locals in the area and avid cavers in the region. Beer cans can be found intermittently in the cave mostly in the upper half. When the cave was first entered, it was probably beautiful. Dust, graffiti, vandals, pigeons, and regular use have diminished its appeal. There are still places in the cave where small formations remain undisturbed as a reminder of what the rest of the cave used to look like. To enter the cave, one must have a good length of rope. In order to rappel down into the rock, a nearby tree serves as a good anchor point. Once the rope is tied to the tree, about 20 feet away from a small cliff, it can be tossed over the edge of the cliff to a small ledge 15 feet below. Cavers can then descend the short distance to the entrance. Once inside the cave, artificial light must be used. My light source of choice is a battery-operated helmet-mounted light, known as a TAG light. Safe caving calls for at least two sources of backup lighting. For my backup lighting, I have a mini mag light mounted to my helmet, and another helmet mounted light in my pack, which I always carry with me. I also have glow sticks that I carry with me. These are not considered good sources of backup light by some, but they are good to use for taking lunch breaks, and they could be used to get out of a cave if the other sources fail. After a short climb over large rocks, the cave comes to a large pit. The same rope is used to reach the bottom of the pit. The drop is only 50 feet or so, but it is not free hanging. In other words, you can't slide straight down the rope, which is preferable. You have to snake your way around sharp rocks as you descend. The ascent is made more difficult for the same reason. The pit varies in diameter from about 10 feet to 3 or 4 feet in a few places. The walls are lined with a sharp white rock called Popcorn. Let me correct that, it used to be white, but is now covered with dust and dirt that was kicked down from above by years of caving. The popcorn makes it painful to brush against the side of the pit. My choice of clothing is Levi's, t-shirt, gloves and knee pants. I usually leave the cave with a few scrapes but at least I am comfortable while I climb around inside. The temperature is stable year round, it feels cool in the summer and warm in the winter. We have gone in on freezing days, and 10 feet into the cave, it is warm enough that coats are not needed. It is a good temperature to work in, as we learned. For the size drop, I usually use a figure eight descending device. For the climb up, I attach myself to the rope using a Petzl Ascender. But I climb up on my own without using the device. It is there merely as a safety attachment, in case I slip. Other cavers have their own methods of getting down and up. At the bottom of the drop, the caver gets to do some crawling for a while. There is a small room, about six by six feet at the bottom, that gives the caver a spot to leave his harness and descending or ascending gear. Since there is no more sleep drops, the harness is not needed and will only get in the way. Once the caver gets down to the six by six room, he can take a break under a ledge while the rest of the party comes down. Then, he must drop to his knees to negotiate a ten foot long passage that is only a few feet high. This is where the knee pads come in handy. The floor is covered with a soft dirt, intermingled with bits of broken rock from above. The thin layer of dirt does nothing to soften the blow to the hands and knees as the caver works down the crawl space. As a reward at the end of the crawl, he gets to drop to his belly and scoop under a tight squeeze. Not really tight just something low enough to make the caver scoot along in the dirt. Once the caver gets on the other side of the squeeze, there are a few feet of crawl space. Then the cave opens up enough to stand. For most of the rest of the cave, the caver can stand, or at least stoop. The cave splits off into several passages at this point. Two routes wind around rocks and crevices, and come to abrupt dead ends. The other two lead to small pools of water, Each route is fun to explore. They all lead on for a hundred feet or so in a gradual downward slope. Most of the time, the cave can walk upright in the passages. Other times, he will have to climb over large boulders, or occasionally crawl on hands and knees. Water is a common occurrence in caves. I have been told that one of the local residents was one of the first people in the cave, and that his cousin dove into the pools using scuba gear. He said the cave continued down for a couple hundred feet underwater. What they were hoping for, and what happens frequently, is that the passage comes up somewhere else, with virgin cave passages to explore. Unfortunately, I don't possess the knowledge to give more detail about the type of rock in the cave. When we were drilling, we would have some parts that were easier to drill than others, and there were different colours in the rock. Refer to the photos taken in the cave. But that is the best I can do to describe the makeup of the cave. At the point the cave splits into four routes. The two passages that dead end are to the immediate left of the caver. Straight ahead and to the right are the passages that lead to pools of water. The entrance to the passage on the right is the largest of the four. The arched opening rises nearly ten feet into the air, ending a mere foot below the cave ceiling. As the caver enters the passage, The ceiling gradually lowers until it's about 6 feet high. It continues at the same height for the 40 feet that the passage travels in the continuous direction. This section of cave resembles a hard rock mine. It's arch nearly perfect and the floor flat and easy to walk on. It's easy to picture rusty minecars on rail lines and dust covered miners with blistered hands gripping dull picks. The mine comes to an end, and the caver is once again forced to drop onto hands and knees and get reacquainted with the floor of the cave. This time, the crawl lasts about 20 feet. The floor is sloping gently downward for the first half of the crawl, then it gets fairly steep and slippery. Able-bodied cavers can still climb carefully down the slippery slope. When I go with B, I carry the end of the rope that we used to get down to this point. I usually need to tie another short length of rope to the first rope, to make sure he can use it to reach the bottom. The crawl lasts a few feet beyond the bottom of the slide. Over the next 10 to 12 feet, the caver slowly begins to regain the standing position. After walking a few feet and climbing down a short drop-off, the caver arrives at a small level, which has a passage leading down immediately to the left. The passage ends 75 feet later, at one of the small bodies of water. To the right is a rock wall. Straight ahead is an indentation in the wall which goes back, about three feet. On the wall at the rear of the indent is a small hole, about the size of a softball. To get near the hole, the caver ducks under an overhang and kneels upon the rocks that rise above the floor by a few inches. By the time the caver reaches this point, he is either warm or sweating, and the first thing he notices is the cool breeze blowing out of the hole. It was my reception of this hole as a potential doorway to unexplored portions of cave that ultimately lead to this telling of my experience. As has been my tradition for all the years I've been caving, the party reaches at a point in the cave, usually at the deepest part of the cave, that all lights are extinguished. Complete blackness fills the eyes. For a moment the individual caver strains the eye muscles, focusing in and out with the expectation of catching a crumb of light somewhere in the false night. After several futile moments, the caver turns his head at a sound, perhaps another caver, only to have the other senses return and then heighten. The sounds, smells, and feelings that have been overlooked at this point come racing to the caver in perfect detail. The pain of their own behind sitting on the cave floor, the smell of the dust, sweat, and guano. The sound of modern material shifting on age-old rock as cavers attempt to find comfort on this solid foundation, at the back of every caver's mind, at this time, is... What if? What if a person had to climb out of a cave with no light? Would he make it? Would he find all of the turns and bends which got him to this place? If not, would a rescue party find him in time? The depth of darkness recognized at this time is something that is rarely experienced outside a cave. Many first-time cavers erroneously declare that they have to hold their hand to within two or three inches of their face before they can see it. The truth is the human eye is incapable of seeing in an absence of light. If they did not hear something coming toward them, they would feel it before they saw it. Complete and total dark. This exercise is a great way, to remind people to take backup lighting. As we proceed to work in the cave, we developed a system pretty early and little change in succeeding trips. The first time in the cave, B took first shift at chipping away at the opening. After about a half hour, he needed a break. So I took over. He told me what works best and I continued doing the same. We would try new things from time to time, to use new muscles, but usually stuck to the same method. We would use the masonry bit and press on the drill as hard as we could and drill out a hole in the rock. Safety glasses and dust masks were worn while working. Then we would insert the ball pin and hammer it into the rock and break out small chunks of the cave. Then we would drill another hole and repeat the process. Occasionally, the drill would hit a soft spot in the rock and that step would be shortened. We would work until we became too tired to continue. Then B and I would trade. While one of us was working, the other would remain in the darkness and eat or drink, or just lay down on the cave floor, padded by rope bags. After just a few rotations, we were tired enough to catch a nap while taking our break. The only light we used was the helmet light on the head of the worker. Since it was pointing towards the hull, the resting person was left mostly in the dark. This was a welcome benefit, since the resting person was usually, well, (laughs) resting. The rest break was also a chance to cool down a bit, which didn't take long in the cooler temperatures of the cave. Fortunately, the temperature of the cave allowed us to work pretty hard and not overheat much. I remember that I frequently looked at the hole and thought, Hey, it's big enough. I think I can squeeze through. Only to be disappointed in my attempt. However, even after the first attempt and failure, I knew that I would keep working on the hole until I got through. This despite the fact that I knew it would take many more hours of hard work. It actually became an obsession with me. I tried to get out of the cave and work as often as I could. I hoped that the passage led to a large undiscovered cave that we would be the first ones to enter. I guess the explorer in me wanted to find a new frontier there in the cave. Since B is such an avid caver, he was motivated by the same desire to find a new unexplored cave. What we did find was not at all what I expected. February 10th 2001 Scarcely two weeks had gone by and already we were on our way back out to work in the cave. We admit we have become obsessed with the idea of getting through the passage. That may be a sign of how exciting our lives really are. It's not that we think there is going to be something great beyond the passage. We just like the idea of being the first human on the face of the planet to set foot in a virgin part of the cave. Although, if we found a hidden treasure, that would be fine with us. We got a late start and drove part of the way in the dark. When I tell people that I go caving at night, they wonder why. They don't stop to think that it's always night once you're inside the cave. All the way out to Mystery Cave, we talked about new ideas to speed up our work. B also told me he talked to some caver friends of his that came up with an explanation about the rumbling noise. They thought it might be the sound of water deep within the cave, possibly a waterfall. They couldn't really explain why the noise seemed to come and go. To me, it is just one more reason to get through. So we can solve the mystery. This trip, we took B's dog, Whip. She is a Jack Russell Terrier. I was not at all concerned about taking the dog into the cave. We have taken her before. She answers the call of nature before we go in and then waits until we get out again. Also she is well behaved inside the cave. We simply had to lower her via a custom made harness until she reached the bottom of the main drop. Then she negotiated the rest on her own. She loves to explore, but won't go out of our sight. She doesn't have a light attached to her, so she has to wait for us. Another reason I didn't mind bringing Whip along was because We planned on putting her into the small hole and see how far into the passage she would go. That might give us an idea of what is on the other side. We knew that if there were a drop off that we couldn't see, the dog would turn around and come right back out. We thought we might have to do some work on the hole before even the dog could get through. Despite working in the dark of the night, we were able to rig up and get down pretty quickly. We didn't take as many tools as last time, Plus, we left some in the hole so we wouldn't have to haul them out and back in again. I did manage to get two more batteries for the drill for a total of four. Also a few more masonry drill bits. Even with the dog, we made good time getting down. Then something bizarre happened that I can't quite explain. The dog began exploring as soon as we let her off the rope. She was in hog heaven, sniffing and darting about around our feet. She would run from one person to the other as we made our way back to the worksite. At the point the cave splits into four passages, the dog seemed to run out of juice. She just stuck right by either B or me. That seemed kind of odd. As we progressed further into the cave, she would only stay by B. She seemed edgy. Like she saw something she didn't like. As we approached the short drop-off before the hole, she stopped and would only come further after we coaxed her. The hair on her back stood on end. Finally, as we got to within twenty feet of the hole, she began to whimper. And hide behind B. Her tail was between her legs, and she was cowering down on the ground. Strange. I have seen her square off with dogs twice her size, but now, she acted as if Satan herself was lurking in the darkness. I figured there must have been animals that used the cave as a home, and Whip smell their scent. Too bad it upset her, because there was no way she was going into the passage. We decided that with this new development, the nervous dog, one of us would work while the other stayed with the dog, a few feet away from where we normally rested. We got right back into our routine of drilling, hammering, etc. With our extra supply of batteries, we were able to really push hard on the drill and not have to worry about using up the batteries. This did not make our work any easier, but it did speed things up a little bit. Progress was still slow, but I didn't really mind, though. My journal goes on for a while about the progress we were making. The entire time we worked, Whip did not move. She just lay there on a rope bag, shivering. She would whimper from time to time. One thing I didn't think about at the time was that she would not take her eyes off the hole. We should have been more observant of this intuitive animal. We were on our fourth battery when the second bizarre thing happened to us. B was working. He had just finished drilling a hole and was getting ready to hammer the bullpen when he stopped working and looked into the hole. I was kicking back, almost asleep, and hardly paying attention to B. He had a light by his side to illuminate the work area. I could see in the eerie glow a puzzled and intense look on his face. He looked over at me and shook his head. I asked him what was up. He said that he swore. He just heard a strange noise, emanating from the hole. He said it sounded like rock sliding on rock. Sort of a grinding sound. I assumed his ears were just ringing from the drill. He didn't wear any earplugs this trip. He assured me he heard what he said he heard. I didn't have an explanation, so I went back to dozing. B sat there in the quiet of the cave for a long time, before he resumed work. Also. He would stop from time to time and just listen. Be as very grounded and not one to pursue some imaginary sound. I believe he heard something. But I'm not too concerned about what it was. I assume we will figure it all out once we get through the passage. The final battery lasted another hour or so. We were sitting around talking about our progress when I decided to see if I could get my head through the hole. My head easily fit but there was no way my shoulders were going in. As I was kneeling there contemplating how close we were, I noticed something that B overlooked. The wind had stopped. In all of the times I've been in the cave, I've always felt the wind blowing. The last time we were out working on the cave, the wind was blowing worse than ever. Even earlier, remember the breeze cooling us off. But now, nothing. B said he did not know when it stopped. The rumbling had ceased, too. Bizarre! This plain old cave was becoming mysterious. We talked for a long time in the dark of cave. We debated what could possibly be causing these unusual events to occur. I think part of the reason we were sitting in the dark was because we were both too hammered to move. We could come up with no reasonable explanation for the strange things happening in the cave. After sitting for at least a half hour? We slowly loaded up our gear and started for the surface. Whip couldn't have been happier to get out of there. Once again, we left some of the tools in the cave. We just put them in the hole. Not enough people used the cave to worry about. Plus, we were too tired to care. We made a lot of progress this trip. It helps to have the extra batteries. We still have a long way to go, but it sure is nice to see how far we have come. The rest of the journal entry talks about climbing out of the cave, getting a room at a motel, and crashing. We were beat. In retrospect, I can't believe how casual we were about everything that was happening in the cave. At the time, the only thing we could think about was getting into the passage. Everything else was just a minor distraction. I do recall thinking that it would be nice to get in and see how the mechanics of the cave worked, where the wind was coming from, what was making the noise, etc. Now, weeks later, I think of my ignorance and naivety, and shiver. Well, listeners, that is the first chapter of Ted the Caver. Have any of you watched the film Descent? Mates, it's terrifying. A group of women go cave exploring, and as they delve deeper and deeper into the caves within the mountains, They discover an unreturnable path that has them fighting for their life. The ending is glorious. I was totally, one, not expecting the ending, and two, blindsided by how dark it is. I recommend the film for those of you who want a good chill of the soul, and something relatively original. Now this story is just picking up, so stick with me. I'm new to it myself and discover the story as I read it with you so Monday we can experience the narrative together. What do you think Ted is uncovering in this cave? And what do you think B is listening for? Rock on rock sounds. Bizarre. Nothing like a good mystery. Folks, have a fantastic weekend. Share a tale or write a story, and best of all, make it gory. As always, listeners, till next we meet.